Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. 2021 has been a year in which one of the things we at Hiraith are trying to achieve, a wider civic discourse in Wales that has increased dramatically. Nation has grown significantly and the National emerged as a pan-Wales media organisation. And if we can blow our own trumpet, Hiraith has continued to develop and produce in areas and with voices that often don't get the attention that they need to. We've also been joined by Beeb full-timers of Walescast, and a wider Welsh media is clearly strengthening. Our final pod of 21 is a look back on the year and answer some of the questions we have been sent in recent weeks. The boys have also let me do the intro for the first time, so I'll give them one of the first questions. So before we get to those questions that have been submitted, we have to really reflect on the past week. Christmas parties in North Shropshire. Rich the Voice, can you kick us off, kick us off on what your take on the shenanigans in North Shropshire and Westminster has been? I can't believe you're doubling down on the voice nickname. There's only one person from Pontypridd that has the voice nickname, and that's Sir the Tom Jones, um, and you don't want to hear me sing. That North Shropshire result, I mean, I think that is that is something that's really going to put the cat among the pigeons. I, I seem to recall in our wrap-up pod last year, I, I made the bold prediction that we'd seen Peak Johnson at that point, and maybe it wasn't quite spot on at the time, but it certainly feels the case now. And the kind of inevitability of the gears turning about who will replace him just reaffirms quite how much the Conservative Party does not like a loser and will do anything to keep on winning. It was quite an extraordinary result. There was a massive fall off in turnout for the Conservative Party, big boost in turnout for the Lib Dems. Is, is this something that Lib Dems should take a huge amount of sucker from? I'm not entirely sure whether that is the case. Is it something that perhaps indicates that the, the way that the next general election will go probably too soon for that. Will it send hairs racing among all Conservative MPs with, you know, safe seats? Well, it possibly should do. Particularly, you know, this took place, election took place in what we might call Cambria Irredenta, for those Welsh historians amongst us, the lost lands of Wales. And I think if you were a Conservative MP across the border, in fact, you'd probably say that all Conservative uh, MPs in Wales, except for, of course, Chris Bryant, should probably be worrying about their uh, constituencies um, in the next election, because just simply the change of voting patterns for this particular one result. It may be a one-off, it was a particularly bad week for the Conservative Party, but my word, if this pattern were to be were to uh, extend across all Wales in the next election, I think we'd be looking at another 1997 moment. Um, what do you think, Matt? You're the professional here. I'm just an amateur. I think that it was a perfect storm, the result in North Shropshire, of the reason for the by-election, which was, of course, the Owen Patterson standing down because of all the issues with corruption. The Christmas party story continued to ramble and ramble on and had numerous chapters last week. And the fact that the Lib Dems are bloody good at by-elections. They're really, really good at by-elections. I don't think, and you won't hear me say this very often, but I don't think that they can go without complete and utter praise in the Lib Dem, in the Liberal Democrat Party, because they targeted the message really well. It turned up, boots on the ground, and they overturned a seat that has been conservative for hundreds of years. Before Thursday night, North Robshire was the 75th safest Conservative seat in the UK. It's an incredible swing. Absolutely incredible. 34-point swing. Unbelievable. 
if they did that across the country, there would certainly be a Lib Dem fight back. But obviously, I don't think they have the resources necessarily to do it. But it will make Boris Johnson very nervy that the Lib Dems can start picking them off in the sort of shyer seats again. I think it shouldn't be underappreciated as well that not only did he have the North Shropshire moment last week, he also had over 100 of his MPs vote against his anti-COVID measures. So he had a really bad week last week. And I think that it is very clear that people like Liz Truss and Priti Patel and Rishi Sunak are all circling around trying to position themselves to be next. Uh, yeah, Rishi Sunak is circling around California at the moment. Um, you know, it's not like he wants to be anywhere near the stench of loss that um, uh, is coming out of Conservative HQ at the moment. What about you, Kerry? I, I think you two have, uh, have covered it, really. Cracking result for the Lib Dems. I actually didn't think it was too bad a result for Labour as well, but uh, I think the Labour Party is getting a bit of a hammer in uh, in North Shropshire for what, what's happened there. I, I'm not really sure what they really want. Well, the interesting thing about it is that the, the, the kind of ongoing development of this kind of informal and unacknowledged voting agreement or, or kind of uh, voter agreement, perhaps, between the Labour Party and the Lib Dems, how much of it is directed from the top and how much it is, it is voters self-sorting on the ground to be able to back the right horse to defeat the Conservatives in places like Cheshire and Amersham in North Shropshire, and uh, what was the what was the one up in Batley? Was it Batley and Spen? That the, oh, that was the, La- the Labour Party hold, yeah. Yeah, Batley, Batley and Spen. And I think every time this happens, there's a there's a little bit of me that thinks, oh wow, yes, voters can overcome first past the post. And then I think to myself, actually, no, that's a really bad thing because what everybody needs to know is first past the post is a terrible voting system, and people should be doing everything they can to get rid of it. Does this kind of reinforce it and make it more livable with? And I, 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 I know, that kind of brings a tear to my eye a little bit. What what do you think of the Labour Party reaction should be and perhaps could be to the Shropshire result, Matt? On the point of self-sorting, Rich, it's far easier in by-elections because there is a significant increase in the media attention on individual seats, which gives people indication of how they should vote if they want to get rid of people. I think it's very interesting that what has happened in North Shropshire is actually the, the party who came third last time have pushed themselves up into first. They're, they're, like I said, they've always said they're very, very good at by-elections with Dems, and they, they know how to tailor that message to say, we can win that seat. Labour have huge issues in those kind of rural seats anyway, trying to win them. They are not the natural party for the annoyed Tory, whereas the Lib Dem is a much easier party for a disgruntled former Conservative voter to pass their vote over to. With regards to Labour, I don't think they should take too much discomfort from the result they had in North Shropshire. I don't think it's necessarily a, a condemnation of what they're doing. There are a number of people who are trying to say that it's, it's look at what Starmer's done. He's pushed us into third in a seat we've never won. And you know my views on Keir Starmer, and I'm, I'm not you know, keen to run to his defence, but I, I don't think it's anything to do with him. And actually what you've seen in the national polls is finally Labour taking a lead. Again, I don't think that's anything to do with Keir. I think that's mainly to do with Boris and the rest of the Conservative Party completely messing everything up. But I think that they should be encouraged by the polling. But if Boris is as short for that role as I think a lot of people have started to think he is, they will have to consider what the impact of a new Conservative leader would be on that poll. Because I, like I said, I don't think it's because of Keir. And I think that as a consequence, that support is soft. And I think that fundamentally, when people go to the polls, most people 
decide on who they think should be prime minister. And if push comes to shove in May 2023, is when I think the next election will be, if people think Dominic Raab or Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss or Priti Patel is the best candidate to be prime minister, they'll probably win. It's a chink of light, though, isn't it? I think if you were the opposition parties in Westminster, particularly the ones in England, obviously, you'd look at this result and you'd think, well, you know, what, what appeared to be an unbreakable Conservative coalition seems to be showing some cracks in it. But it's really important for them not to get high on their own supply about this, is that the things that have won them a couple of by-elections have been Conservative disengagement or apathy, Conservative voters not turning out with the Conservative Party, fortuitous circumstances in terms of the news cycle for that particular period. And also, if you then look at the polling, while Labour seems to have overtaken uh, the Conservatives as a general trend, who would you vote for? If you then look at who is most trusted with some of the key components of managing the country, economy and such, uh, it's still the Conservatives that come out on top of that, everything except the NHS, which kind of suggests to me exactly what you just said, Matt, that, that the support is soft. And simply by standing there and being the reasonable option is not enough for Keir Starmer to find himself with the keys to number 10. He needs to still win votes and win support. And I do wonder if maybe the Labour Party has had a look at what other options there might be among their ranks in terms of who might be a better front person for the party and concluded that there isn't anyone better at the moment. Is that I fair? saw your tweet this week, Rich, on you thinking that Wes Streeting was better than Keir Starmer. And is, honestly, is that what I said? Is that what I said? I think you said something along the lines of, is Wes better than Keir? Okay, I'll clarify the point. But even asking the question sort of implies that's where you were going. I don't think he is, no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he is necessarily better. But, uh, you know, in the immortal words of an 80s pop star I, I can't recall right now, the only way is up. I think you'll find that was Yaz. Was that Yaz? And it was oh. a cover version of an Otis Redding song from the 80s. But anyway, yes, the, is the only way up. Are you, do you think the only way is up for the Labour Party? In terms of performance, perhaps, but I think in, in regards to the polling, I think they're probably where they are, where they should be. When you consider everything that we've had with Boris and party gates and all that kind of stuff, I, I think if they had had all this news, news that portrays the Conservative Party in a bad light, and they weren't ahead in the polls, then they'd be seriously, seriously worried. But like I said, new leader, a change in the new cycle... And you could see the Conservatives right back on top again. I, I, I don't deny, I don't doubt that at all. Of course, I mean, we've spent the last 20 minutes talking about a, an English by-election result and essentially the um, leadership of both the English Conservatives and the English Labour Party. Uh, is there any read across at all to Wales that we should take from this result? Just to, just to continue a theme in this uh, in the pods, I'll just point out an English by-election, but the Welsh marches constituency there, Rich. I was just about to say, I mean, there's parts of... That North Stropshire constituency, which are quite Welsh speaking, aren't they? Well, Kerry might know a bit better. It's he's from that's more his sort of part of the world. It's a little north for me, but yeah, I, I, I'm not sure on the Welsh speaking here. But traditionally, Oswestry has been that uh, bastion of Welshness across the border, hasn't it? I think things are changing, but I'd say you class it as a quite a Celtic leaning area. So is there any read across to Wales then from this election result? No, I don't think so. I, I think that if you had a by-election in one of the Conservative seats in Wales, well, Bellin, 
for example, um, which is definitely not going to happen now, then you might see a similar uh, reaction against Rob Roberts. What about, what about the Lib Dems in Wales, though? Because we, we live in a Lib Dem-free Wales at the moment at the uh, Union Parliament. What about those two poet seats of... Uh, is it not Marion? Gombrisha and, and uh, yeah. Brecon and Radisher. Yeah. Would the Lib Dems see those two as their target seats in the next um, election? I mean, considering they came fourth in Caradigio, and that seems lost for them in, now. In the current climate, I'd quite happily put money on both those seats going back Lib Dem. With the right candidate, I'm sure they would. Uh, we've got a we've got a wager there, Mr. Davis, because I I could not agree less with you. I think those are blue as a deep deepest sea. They they are not going back Lib Dem, and we have lots of recent election proof of this. You see what happened to the, the Lib Dem vote in Montgomeryshire? They went through the floor. Yeah, we, okay, in a by election, yeah. they they'd really put a good go at it, but I don't think they win them back. I mean, they won BNR in a by-election not too long ago, if you remember correctly, when Jane Dodds took it to be an MP for however many months. I know, but we've just just spent 20 minutes talking about a Conservative seat, which for 200 years has remained blue. So I would say two Welsh seats, which have been back and forth Lib Dem in recent years, they'd have an absolutely cracking chance of it. What led us to North Shropshire, Owen Patterson, and those very costly 30-day suspension now? You know, unless the two members for Montgomeryshire or Brecon and Radnor have that kind of sleaze aspect to it, you may well be right. But, you know, we don't know what a bio-bio-election is. Theoretically, I think every seat that have been in that kind of position would be up for grabs in a hypothetical by-election. But... Shropshire has taken far too much of our time. So I just want to drive you both towards the other big story this week, and one which we've had a few questions come into the pod from. There's obviously COVID, and uh, that's been a feature throughout the year. We've mentioned it in a number of the pods. But one of the questions we've had is, you know, are we seeing a step change in the dynamics of the union now, with, with Wales, in particular Labour, increasingly recognising it doesn't have the levers needed to manage the situation. That was very apparent this week. Uh, this week. Rich, do you, do you think there's a beginning, uh, a realisation amongst our governing party that more is needed in Wales? I'm kind of reminded of the uh, modern classic Nanny McPhee. Uh, when you want her but do not need her, then she will go. But when you need her and do not want her, then she will come. I, I, I honestly don't think you can conflate want and need in this circumstance because you could have, and I don't want to stand up, be the, be the flag bearer for the union here, but you could have, if the union was being managed really well by people who were putting all of their effort into delivering for the people, delivering, dare I even say, on the people's priorities, then you could imagine that there would be no need for additional powers in Wales and Scotland because it would already be done. However, as we know, that is not the circumstance that we find ourselves, despite, and I think you have to be fair to say that there are a number of very talented and able and well-intending MPs on the Conservative benches in in Westminster, uh, including, I I think I'm probably tenuously say, friend of the pod, Faye Jones, uh, friend of the precursor to the pod. Um, MP for Brecon. Um, friend, friend, until she heard me say that she'd probably lose the seat in a, in a hypothetical by-election. It's complicated. 
you know, it's, it's almost from a Welsh context impossible to disassociate the fact that Mark Drakeford is the most secure leader of any government on these islands at the moment. That includes the Republic of Ireland. I mean, with the, the proportional share of the parliament that he has on his side, plus the cooperation agreement with Plaid Cymru, he is in a position to be far more assertive than you have ever seen him before, because literally up until the day he steps down as first minister, he is going to win every vote that he cares about because he has the numbers in Parliament, in the Welsh Parliament to do it. But I think what we have seen is organisation on behalf of, increasing organisation on behalf of the Welsh and Scots governments, who have been far more public, far more assertive, and I think they probably suspect they have the public sympathy in this regard, is that recognising that there is a vacuum of leadership and a vacuum of attention to detail in London at the moment. They realise that if they want to deliver and be seen to deliver for their respective populations, the way to do it is to publicly campaign for that. And I think they probably, they're probably quite right to do so. And here we are recording, is it the day after the COBA meeting, to discuss this very thing. And it's a good sign. I think it's a healthy sign of the people trying to deliver for their populations first. And um, let's hope that that continues. Uh, Matt, you're, you're far more plugged in than I. Please add some actual substantive comment here. I think that he would have probably gone further with COVID restrictions this week if he, if he could have. The, the politics of cancelling Christmas again would have been probably a bit much for even someone as secure as Mr Drakeford to, to get away with you would have seen since the beginning of the pandemic, in fact, I think he is much more comfortable now criticising not only the actions of the Conservative Party in government in the UK, but of the mechanisms of the UK state and government. And I think that is a clearer distinction now that we see than we did before. That it's not just the fact that there's a party of a different political colour at the other end of the M4, it's, it's that he doesn't like the way that the state works. And I think that that is potentially quite important. There was something in the um, that I saw the other day, which was one of those fake articles about well, about COVID restrictions before it came in, and it said something along the lines of Mark Drakeford has lost the has lost confidence in the UK government or lost in in Westminster or something like that. And I thought I knew that's why it was fake because there's no way on earth Mark Drakeford would ever say he he lacked the confidence in the, like the way that the UK government worked. Uh, that's far too nationalist for him. But I think he's starting to realise there are other ways to get what he wants, and he needs to do that now if he's going to be able to stand up for Wales, to coin a phrase. One of, one of the other questions we had around COVID chaps was uh, from Nick Webb. I keep forgetting to mention who asked these, some of these questions, but thanks, Nick. It was around COVID is changing the way we live and work, and will... That changed the way the Senate interacts forever. You know, are virtual members now something we will have all the time? I think this is a really interesting one. And I think we have to look past the, the famous incident of the Conservative Party conference dial in imbroglio that took place earlier in the year, because that is an outlier for very specific reasons. The priority should always be accessibility of members to attend and to vote. But there are real challenges about the efficacy of a parliament when people can't attend in person. And I think actually look at the mechanics of how the Senate works. 
has it been less effective or are there instances when it can be less effective because it doesn't have members in in person and and i'm not talking about nathan gill just being absent without leave for years and years i'm talking about people you know not being there in person and i don't have an answer i think i would like to see it as an option because as i think when we talked about this year was it years ago can i say years ago with beth and syed about um, her challenge attending Parliament when she was um, on maternity leave and expecting and, and various other issues. I think y- you want to try and make sure that it is ac- as accessible as possible for people. But the, the actual mechanics on the ground, I mean, particularly think about Westminster. I mean, Westminster is a museum. The idea that you can have you know 21st century technology involved in voting and various other things when the voting system literally requires people to leave the the debating chamber, walk around the corner and wait to sign their name on a piece of paper. And the whole thing, just for a single vote, takes, you know, 15 to 20 minutes. I mean, that's, you know, the idea that they can do a mixed parliament. I don't, I just don't see that that's compatible. Whereas I think in the Senate, uh, as we might talk about in a little while with the changes relation to the co- cooperation agreement, the Llywydd has said quite clearly that it will try and evolve and be as modern as possible. And we should all try and welcome that. But it's not e- it's not as easy as I think we would like it to be, as I understand it. Matt, any thoughts on your side? Well, only that I think that the major reason they don't have virtual, a virtual or a hybrid parliament in Westminster is because it's much harder to whip people if you can't see the whites of their eyes. And there are a lot more MPs than there are members of the Senate, which is, you know, a very matter-of-fact statement there. The whipping discipline is not as difficult. Because you've only got a handful of people to make sure they vote the right way. Whereas in Westminster, and the way they vote in Westminster, you kind and you kind of want to drag them through the lobbies as close to you as possible. So that, that's the only thing. I, that's the only thing I, I can think of. I, I, I echo what you said, Rich. I think it's very important. The building, well, the building and access to democracy for representatives as well as the people gets more and more accessible as possible. And the hybrid format of the Senate should stay. And I and I think that it will just to round that off i give you both think it will i think it's a really positive position on a number of levels it allows you know it should help increase diversity in the senate and gives people an opportunity to do a lot of the things which we talk about and anecdotally i have spoken to a couple of uh, uh ms's who say that you know it does help them in the way they work and that's got to be a positive as well we did have another question around the Senate, so I'll give it to you now. Josh Owen Morris has asked us, from part of the cooperative agreement, will a bigger Senate lead to an uncorking or merely cause for an uncorking of devolution in some of the wider areas, such as the Crown Estate, justice, welfare, etc.? Matt, what do you think? One of the major concerns with relation to asking for more powers or for areas of more responsibility for the Senate is that Already so much is done by so few because they are constantly in numerous committees and they don't have the capacity really to legislate on a large number of things. That's why that you've seen recently Wales is using so many legislative consent motions to allow Westminster to legislate for them in a lot of areas. If you had more members of the Senate, it would allow you to Uh, demand more powers and areas of responsibility but I think that they would probably ask the Senate members to sit for longer than they do right now and again the current sitting times of the Senate are again one of the things that do really make it accessible you don't have those silly late sittings like they do in Westminster it is much more a business kind of time 
uh, arrangement and that's welcome i don't think you should be seeking to make members of the senate sit longer there's an argument to say maybe they could sit for longer on they could sit in plenary on a monday or a thursday or whatever and um, that might increase the capacity to do it but realistically how good can scrutiny be when you you have to serve on at least one committee if you're not a, a member of the government you just don't have the time to focus on the scrutiny and accountability that you really need to if you're going to be exercising functions in a much broader area with without that i don't think wales would have well the senate would have the capacity to deal with things like justice policing they're huge topics that require so much scrutiny and oversight it would be i think unwise to do that whilst there isn't an increase in the members of the senate but i do think as a result of the cooperation agreement we will see more members of the senate anyway that's almost one of the one things I think we are guaranteed to do. That's a natural next step is to then ask for more powers. Yeah, it's kind of inconceivable to think that the greater control that the Welsh Government may have over various hitherto undevolved areas would be able to occur without an expan expansion of the Senate. It's just simply not possible to do. I should mention very quickly, to, uh, just to follow your question about the virtual Senate, Kerry, I mean, the, one of the best things that has come about as a result of the virtual Senate is that talk of the Senate Roadshow, picking up the whole Senate chamber and going on, on the road or the rail, probably not the rail, maybe a bus uh, up to North Wales and various other things on a regular basis. That's all being brought to a standstill. And I think that's a great idea because that was one of the worst ideas that I think came out of the last Senate at all. That was a complete waste of time, rather like moving the House of Lords to York or whatever. Don't forget the cabinet meetings in North Wales, Rich. Don't forget the cabinet meetings in North Wales. Sure, the people of North Wales will never forget them. Never. Uh, I, I, you know, I think you, you're absolutely right, Matt. I think a co cooperation agreement does explicitly say that there will be recommendations upon which both parties will act about the expansion of the Senate. I think the thing that we just don't know yet is what to what extent the Senate will be expanded. I, I still think that, if I recall correctly, that the... Uh, cooperation agreement says that the Senate will be expanded to between 80 to 100 members. I still think that the, the, it, we're more likely to see 100 than any other number, because I think that that will give the capacity to do more in a way that just expanding to 80 or 83 or 87 will not, because that that's probably the size that the Senate should be at the moment with the responsibilities that it has at the moment. And I think that ultimately what they'll do is they'll there'll be a push and pull between Applied wanting to have a more proportional voting system and not getting that because the Labour Party doesn't want it. And in exchange for that, the numbers will probably go higher than they would be if the Labour Party was the only one making the decision. Do you have any thoughts on that, Kerry? Uh, well, I, I'm probably one of the sceptics on having more. I, I want them to do a bit less, but do it better with what we've got at the moment. I think to answer Owen, uh, Josh's question, if we do get more areas to, to scrutinise justice welfare, I'm completely in agreement that we need to increase the size of the Senate. I think, I think it will happen, but I also think, um, put me on the spot, I, I also think the way we do government, we can step back after 20 years and uh, to coin a civil service, right, you know, a bit of a pause and review and see how we work, because I think there's changes we could make in a number of areas, and I'd like that to have been looked at in some of the, the various reviews we've had but there's no question in my mind that if we have some of the bigger ticket policy areas, such as justice and welfare, the number of members does need to increase. I, I'm less convinced at the moment, but if we are going to increase, I'd, 
I think the current Senna chamber can be is designed to be increased to 80 with very little capital works. So I'd, I'd certainly go to that. Then after that, if you're spending a lot of money on the chamber, I'm not sure if there'd be a huge demand by the public for more money on a, a Cardiff Bay building. But that's where the virtual chamber might also come in as well. So all these things I do think are quite linked. And uh, there is an aspect, I don't know, I think, Matt, you do it professionally, and I, I'm sure you do, Rich, a little bit at times. But I can watch some of the chamber debates, and they are pretty sparsely attended as well as we know, happens in Westminster. So, you know, that, that that's an interesting factor to put into it all. I think that's the nature of the timings, though, Kerry, more than anything else. Those debates, you know, there's a tendency in the Senate to try and fit a lot in on those sitting days. So they'll have those sort of 45 minutes for a statement by the minister and then sort of either half an hour or 60 minutes for debates. And I think that once the minister, you know, when those minister's statements, once the minister's done their spiel basically they only really have time for maybe five five or six responses to that max in that 45 minutes period if it's not something that needs to be debated it's not something you need to vote on and you're not going to speak in that in that discussion i i, I can understand why people would say well i'm, I'm not going to go to the the Shambert. i'll uh, i'll have a meeting instead or i'll meet a constituent instead or something like that i can see why you do that it's just a more efficient use of uh, of elected representatives time really yeah and, and it's true of all parliaments isn't it i mean you just have to look at uh, meme based um shots of uh, the union parliament at you know uh, of capacity there when they're debating various matters of significant import and and you know it's always the one at the bottom which is when debating mp's pay or something on those lines it's absolutely packed full most debates most of the time are sparsely populated and that's just the way that that most normal in a representative democracies work. But on this subject of um, modernization, and I think you're quite right, Kerry, uh, you know, the idea that you could have more members than there are actual seats for in the chamber is you know, very doable. And it's one of those things that it just requires people to just make good decisions so that they, you know, what is most important here and figure out a way to do it. And I'm quite encouraged by the, the words of the show with when talking about the cooperation agreement, where um, she says she will, um, no, she will continue. Uh, what does she say? She says something. Good, good, uh, good prep here, Rich. Good prep. She says it's an evolving Wales is an evolving democracy, and we should prepare to govern in different ways and work in the interests of the people of Wales. And I think that says it as as neatly as you possibly could. The Senate will always be evolving in different ways, and uh, I think that's a really healthy thing. And as long as it's done well, and not not from a party political point of view, but from just a genuine commitment to good democracy, the kind of thing that is sadly on the wane elsewhere on this island and elsewhere in the world at the moment. I think it's just really good. Keep the machine in good working order uh, and other things good will follow from that. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Plied Labour Agreement and what this means? Particularly with relation, as I think we've seen in the news, with regard to Plied's uh, co-opposition status in the Senate. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? I think the fact that Adam won't be able to use his questions at FMQs to promote anything within the cooperation agreement we were all we spent the last few weeks lauding how broad and wide-ranging the cooperation agreement is it seems like it's rather limiting to plug company now if you can't use anything to if you can't use anything within that scope to to, to raise a question on fmqs you're seeing the fact that he may himself have to face questions 
once a month. Again, it's this very blurry line between whether they are in government or exercising executive functions when you know they're not because they're still they're still getting short money. So they're still getting the money they get for being an opposition party. But they've got, you know, a designated member who leads on the agreement who's sort of like a deputy minister. And then they've got Adam receiving questions like a minister would. Would they would they be able to send Adam Price written questions, for example, written, you know, like like they do to other ministers? That would be a fascinating thing worth considering. Also, if I replied spokesperson, I'd be a bit aggrieved that now I'm only going to be able to ask two questions at question sessions instead of three. If I was Peredia Griffiths, I would be uh, very concerned that I was going to be deposed as chair of the finance committee. Another thing that Ellen said that basically she doesn't, she thinks that the budget process would be better if it wasn't being scrutinized by a member who was part of the cooperation agreement. It's going to really change the way that the Senate works, I think, this cooperation agreement, in ways beyond we, what we were thinking. Because it, it's, it's so much more than simply a, a, a policy platform. It, it, is a co- it is a coalition agreement in all but name. And the fact that Plaid haven't got ministers. If Plaid get to the end of this term and they haven't got a sizable amount of that done and feel comfortable and confident in in being able to say, we played our part in this, we got this done for Wales for the next election, they're going to feel like mugs because it will have really limited the ability to hold the government to account. It would have greatly limited their ability to talk in the Shambhur and it will have a real knock-on effect if if they just basically voted through a bunch of Labour policies that they didn't have to. Yeah, I think we should all just give a round of applause to whichever um, advisor came up with this whole system in the first place, because they've managed to. It's, it reminded me of the you know, in the halcyon days of uh, peak Brexit turmoil. Theresa May was desperately trying to find a way to stay part of the customs union territory without being part of the customs union. This is this is this is more or less the same thing. I, I find it. Absolutely fascinating. You're absolutely right. That proof of the pudding will be in the eating. We'll find out in a few years' time. Probably when does it come to? It comes to an end in 2024, doesn't it? So we'll be in the era of a new first minister and everything along those lines at that point. And if they've managed to deliver, and I think coming from Ply's position where they're the third party um, in the Senate, not not a third, a, you know, a hugely distant third party like the Lib Dems or the SNP in um, the Union Parliament. But they're third party by a good few members. And the fact that they have the potential for shaping the delivery of government for the next few years is worth it. But as you rightly say, if, as we've already seen a few suggestions, that some of the promises of the coalition agreement or some of the promise, I should say, of an agreement may not be fulfilled, that does expose them quite badly. And I think it's a question of priorities. You know, of the 46 policy areas, how many of those will be delivered and in what order. What are the most important ones for Plaid? Frankly, maybe some of the more symbolic ones and maybe some of the more easily achievable ones are possibly more electorally salient for the kind of people that might support Plaid Cymru. Simply reforming the Senedd is just a big win for Plaid voters. And maybe they'll, you know, that and a few others, you know, that we've already seen the the free school meals is is obviously something that I think most people will get behind and see as an electorally successful campaign, obviously socially, you know, very valuable. And I think Plaid will, oh, 
there's a pun there. Clyde will dine off that uh, for a little while to come, having uh, pushed that uh, to delivery from September. I think at the end of the day, I think what I would like to just say is just to echo what Kerry said about modernisation and innovation. And I think one of the biggest disbenefits of the Union Parliament is the fact that it is uh, calcified in the late 1700s. And, you know, it is so resistant to change. And actually, it makes a virtue of not changing in so many different ways. The fact that we have a parliament that is not only willing to try different things, but also to try and make them work as well as possible, I think is something to be applauded. And, um, you know, it may be that it, they try it and for whatever reason, it doesn't work either logistically or, or politically. But let's let's see and, and let's hope that we can continue to innovate in, in a way that we as a nation should probably be quite proud of. Right, Chuck, I'm going I'm to push us away from the mainstream Senate politics, because there's a few questions in the mailbag. I want us to get us through before we finish. Let's have it. Let's give it a go. So friend of the pod, Dr. Ed Bridges has asked on one of those tricky local government areas, which I know we're beginning to plan a series for next year, but Ed has asked, will we ever see reorganisation of local government in Wales or will that forever be in the too difficult too politically contentious box. I've got I got an indication that you're picking this up first, Matt. Over to you. Yes, too contentious, too difficult. The way that politics on the ground works, which is when MSs fight their elections, they get an incredible amount of help from their local councillors, means that people are a little scared of their councillors and don't want to annoy them. Um, so the idea of having local government reorganisation, which, to be honest, would probably re uh, result in fewer councillors, or, or at least councillors with different electoral wards or boundaries or whatever, with different political dynamics. You know, if you merge two wards, you merge two councils, there's going to only be one leader, so one leader is going to be very aggrieved, all that kind of stuff. It's just too hard. The line from Mike Hedges that I always find particularly interesting is that just because the councils are bigger doesn't mean they're better at delivering services. He should know, he used to run a local authority. But it does just feel, and I think most people in Wales feel, that 22 local authorities is just too much for a country the size of Wales. If you look at the population of Wales, which is just over 3 million, we have 22 local authorities. You've got London with a population of sort of nearly 9 million, isn't it? And they've got 32. So do we need 22 local authorities? I don't think so. Um, remember, I remember when we had Carwin Jones on the pod before Rich, and he basically said that the one thing he really wished he got done when he was... First Minister was local government reorganisation and he had working majorities for most of the time he was in power and he couldn't get it through. So I'd say that we will be living in a land of 22 local authorities for quite some time to come. So much of all the other policy areas, local authorities are in the mix on that. And we, d we don't have, as I just said around the Senate, about pausing to review, seeing how things can be done and what the approach should be but I, I think at some point we have to address that and really put a governance structure in that is fit for the 21st century. And if we're increasing the numbers of members of the Senate, I think at the same time we look at the, the governance structure below that and really position that to be a modern, workable position for a country of three million people. And I don't like our political representatives, and it, not you two, but putting these things in the too difficult folder. These are things we need to do. They're incredibly important around education, planning, economy, transport, 
health, social care. It's interlinked and we need something which is fit for purpose. Um, we need people in those kind of councillor positions who are fit for purpose as well. So I do want it to be looked at. I think you're both right. It probably isn't. But I also think we're having a change in how we view politics with the cooperation agreement. This decade, we may see something, but, uh, you know, we'll see. Yeah, you've got to remember that not, it, not, it, we're not in a situation where nothing is being done. The Welsh Government is working on below the rate, largely below the radar, regional cooperation agreements, the CJCs, the education consortia are all starting to merge along sort of familiar grounds. You know, it, it's not like it's standing still. Uh, you know, if we're in the feeding for a wager, I would say we are safe to put a bet on the fact that there will be no reorganisation moment in Wales, certainly in this Senate term. Should we move on, chaps? What's next, Kerry? From another friend of the pod, regular, who joins us, Gemma Beer. She's asked, 2022 prediction for the local elections. Has anyone got anything they want to pick up on that? We will, or I won't, but many people will knock doors, deliver leaflets, go to the polls, and broadly, nothing will change. I think that you can see Labour picking up, maybe getting Merthyr Tidville back. They they currently lead uh, Vale of Morgan Council, but I think they'll lose that because they are supported by a bunch of former Conservative independents. I think in Cardiff, where me and you live, Kerry, I think you'll see an increased uh, majority. I was speaking to someone in the know in the Cardiff Labour Party the other day, and they said they thought they would see around 50 or so councillors, which would be a stonking majority if they did that in Cardiff with 70-something-odd seats. So I, I think that... Were you, were you both out drinking when they told you that? No, 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 no. They were, they were, they were, they were as, a, as a judge, my friend. Now, of course, with the Common Ground Alliance that you are fighting, Kerry, I'm sure that you'll want to see a slightly different result. But the people I speak to in the Labour Party are very competent in relation to, 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 to doing well in Cardiff. Welsh Labour has a new general secretary, Joe McIntyre, a very well-respected person. I think they're going to have... They've appointed a good person at the right time with enough time to get everything organised, everyone hired and in place for the local elections. And I think they're going to give a bloody good go at trying to win as many council seats as possible. Rich, Matt's just disappointed me. That's kind of put a grey mark over Christmas. Do you want to, do you want to try and cheer me up? If you, can you see anything a little rosier? Well, dare I say, Kerry, that's the price you pay for not coming for, to me first, because I was going to say massive stonking victory in Cardiff Central for common ground uh, is what I was going to say. Uh, you know, the, the reality on the ground is <laughs> rather like local government reform. Is it going to happen? No. Is the overall picture of local government control in Wales going to change hugely? No, I don't think it is. I think Matt, I think in a previous pod when we touched on this, said that he anticipated that the Labour Party would massively extend its existing um, base of councillors, and I think that's very, very likely to be the case. There is going to be a continuing Drakeford bounce. If I'm correct, I think the second highest number of councillors in Wales is Plaid Cymru, and I suspect that would probably be the same. I, I would suspect if we continue to see the travails that we see in Westminster, that the number of Conservative councillors will fall away. And that might be 
um, telling in some uh, local authorities, but I suspect the reality on the ground is the Conservatives will be largely stable as well. And we probably will see more Liberal Democrats. I suspect that pendulum is swinging back and we may even see a Green or two. I think, at, alas, the Greens have recently lost a councillor um, in POIS, and let's hope that um, they come back onto the electoral map. I think that the one to watch, the curious thing, is we're not seeing uh, any huge appetite to pick up STV at council elections um, in Wales, despite it being something that could happen conceivably. And in that context, one would suspect that nothing significant will change. But I will be curious to see if in the places where UKIP and you know all of the various forms of which um, subsequently have done reasonably well, whether those parties will manage to coalesce around a single banner in any way and start to see some kind of local representation. Uh, we saw in North Shropshire that if Reform, is it Reform UK, the new Brexit party label and UKIP and the, the other one that begins with an R, Reclaim, if they all combined and were able to coalesce, then maybe they would have managed to save a deposit at least. Um, and that theory has never been tested except for in the period around 2016 when UKIP was in ascendancy. But if, if these little parties of the, the further to the right of the Conservative Party were able to get their act together, I think that could be interesting, but um, even still in, in modern Wales. But let's see. Let's see. I, I, I suspect you know, the general pattern of parties won't change, except that Labour will probably extend uh, their lead somewhat. Just, just to prefer my two pen, I, think I, I agree with you both. I don't think there'll be huge change. One of the things I'm looking forward to in next year's pods is to have a bit more in-depth with you. I think a lot of what goes on at local uh, council elections are driven by local positions and uh, understanding what's going on in Ceredigion or Wrexham or on Anglesey will give us a bit of a feeling for that. I, I don't think huge changes, but I think if we do see changes, it'll be from those kind of local arguments that are, perhaps aren't well known around Wales. So we'll see We'll see where that goes. Just to pick us up, because Gemma has joined with a number of other people who sent in questions, and it's around another one we'd probably file in the difficult area. But it, it's again been something which has appeared in the past week. It's around Yes Cymru and the EGM. I think it's fair to say... We have looked at the union and independence quite a lot on the pod, but we haven't focused on the the Yes Cymru. I'm going to say shenanigans, the Yes Cymru shenanigans in the pods. So can we quickly look at that? Where does this week leave the, the campaigners and the players in Yes Cymru across the political spectrum? Either of you want to pick up this hospital pass, Matt? I mean, it doesn't seem like a very happy place, does it, Kerry? Uh, not being a member of the organisation, I can't really comment on how it feels to be involved, but there has been, for what feels like forever now, um, a very brutal argument between people who believe that independence should come first and then you decide everything else after, and those who have a vision for what an independent world should look like. And that has ended up coming very heated on social media with lots of people attacking each other and doxing each other and all this kind of stuff. And I think that there was a, a belief that this whole Gwaithgort process would create something that everybody was happy with. 
And yes, it passed pretty convincingly, but I have seen on social media, which is of course not the real world, as we know, a significant amount of people who've now resigned for their Yes Can Be membership as a result of this uh, result. So I, I, I think that it is not a happy place to be. If, if I were a big wig in the independence movement, and uh, I think for everyone will be very grateful that I'm not, that they should move to some sort of um, Congress model. So like the TUC, have, have groups of independence supporting groups come together, discuss best practice, all that kind of stuff. And then they can all have their own campaigning aims, objectives, et cetera. And then just let Yes Cymru act as like a de facto TUC body, which just sort of organizes uh, funding and training and all that kind of stuff around. Uh, I think that's what they should have done. But I, I think they've uh, they've decided on something much too complicated and I can't remember it. So I'm not going to say it. And then it, if, if Rich can remember what that document looks like, feel free, but I can't. No, it was pretty imp- impenetrable. Uh, I think the, qu- the question I'm not sure whether you ask, Kerry, is what the independence movement in Wales looks like, what the situation is for the independence movement. I think ultimately the people who are engaged in their different factions will just pursue the same cause under different, um, different umbrellas. We know that there is, obviously, yes, Cymru will probably, I guess, simply being the mass membership organisation it is, probably continue to be the dominant campaign force outside of the political parties. There are smaller factions, there's Indod and various others, which um, I suspect will perhaps pick up some of those disaffected Yes Cymru members, um, which you know, may or may not be a beneficial in terms of the overall campaign or not. Ultimately, though, I would say that the problem ahead for the independence movement in Wales is one of leadership. You know, it's often said, you know, in any business or whatever, that the leader or the manager is the prism through which someone sees the organisation. And since Sean Jobbins's uh, term as the spokesperson for Yes Cymru came to an end, there hasn't been a spokesperson for Yes Cymru. So people are painting whichever picture they want onto Yes Cymru without there being somebody who can set the tone and set the agenda and similarly you could argue the case for the various movements within political parties I think when Leanne Wood lost the leadership of Plaid Cymru I think that was a moment when a number of people on the left of Plaid Cymru looked at Plaid Cymru again and said well is this still the party that I want to campaign for um, similarly elsewhere in you know in Labour and the Liberals and elsewhere where there have been smaller groups that have campaigned for independence or any other specific cause you find that. The leadership is what keeps it going and what keeps the wheels turning and what keeps members motivated. And um, I would say that the independence movement has the kind of honorary leadership of people like Michael Sheen and elsewhere. But the on the ground leadership, the CEOs of the various movements, so to speak, I think that there's a vacuum there. And until that vacuum is filled by people who can lead from the front and bring people together, then I suspect that the independence campaign across the board will be treading water. Any thoughts, Kerry? Uh, well, my, my thoughts are it, it's quite a sad position to be in for whatever, for whatever reason. I, I'm a supporter. I think in some of what I do, I've driven a particular agenda in the party I'm part of to get a certain position, which I'm quite proud of. Yes, Cymru is just one of a number of driving forces towards that kind of position, uh, not just of independence, but to get a referendum for that. And 
a lot of the driver, as much as we might like to think it's social media by such groups, it's actually opposition to Westminster has driven a lot of that kind of view in the past two years. And I think what happens in Scotland will be crucial to where we are. You know, I haven't followed in detail the whole Gwythgore and what's next. As you said, Matt, I think the result of the vote they had was quite conclusive. My kind of leanings are towards those that think we need to present a picture of post-independent Wales to actually attract people rather than just campaign for the sake of it. But um, that's incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. You know, we haven't touched on Brexit tonight, but it's very much in that kind of mode. I don't think people will vote for something so ethereal again. And so we really need to, those who are interested in an independent Wales, all have to work together to put in place a picture of what that will be and why people need to be interested and how they will probably be better off in that kind of position. But I think, yes, Camry, I think there's another vote. The next, the next committee or board of directors, whatever it may be, they've got a, a real a year next year of rebuilding and solidifying where the past year's got them to, really. And hopefully the Annas Horribilis won't be repeated. And with a bit of luck, I've been on a couple of marches. We can do that again and and get some interest. Before we finish, gents, there is one more pot, uh, question I wanted to ask you both. And it's really about, you know, where we are now with Hiraith. We're 50 pods in. You I, can think, I, think, me. I think Mr. Martin will, uh, will tell you that he's, he's edited much more than 50 pods. I, I should have said 50 pods this year. Um, uh, that, that annual output. I think we're, we're more than that over the, the two years or so. I, I think we've delivered quite a lot of really interesting pods this year we've given voice to a lot of people we don't normally hear from which is you know quite important to me and I, I think we've touched on some really important subjects I'm just wondering you know what pods have stood out for you this year you know has anything really struck home with you and and why Rich do you want to do you want to give us your thoughts from behind the scenes this feels like yeah pick one which has been your favorite child I think you touched on it in the introduction, Kerry. I think one of the things that we've seen over the last couple of years, partly as, the, as a result of the pandemic, but also the, pro, the progress that started before that, is seeing a genuine change in the way that Wales is reported in the media. So I would say that of the, of the pods that I've most enjoyed listening to as a listener of the pod, as much as someone who uh, works on it, I, um, I've really enjoyed the interviews with... Um, journalists. We had Will Haywood recently uh, from Wales Online. I think that was a really interesting pod. We've had, obviously, Theo a gazillion times uh, and others from the National, uh, Becca Wilkes, etc. And it's been great. The National has been a great addition to the public sphere in Wales. Uh, but the one I think I'm most pleased of is uh, when we had Stephen Bush of the New Statesman earlier in the year. Um, it's always nice to get the outsider's view, um, and particularly somebody who's as as much an insider in the Labour Party circles as Stephen uh, to talk about the outsider's view of Welsh Labour. Uh, I thought that was really interesting and really kind of flipped our normal discourse on its head a little bit. Um, so yeah, those would be my favourite ones. I can't help but agree with Stephen Bush. That was really cool. Uh, when we had in our group chat when we were cheeky and said oh let's invite him on i never actually thought he'd come on so that was again one of my personal highlights was interviewing stephen bush 
I haven't had any much luck with Ben Rhodes yet. You know, the, uh, the <laughs> Obama, um, the like the chief of, wasn't the chief of staff, was he? Um, but anyway, I've tried that a few times, listeners. Uh, still no reply. No friend request from Ben Rhodes, uh, as and Jane Dodds might say. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what we would talk about, even if he said yes. The Welsh history of Pennsylvania. Other ones I've really enjoyed. I really enjoyed having Thomas Leahy on to talk about the politics of the island of Ireland. I thought that was really interesting. And um, one of my personal favourites, which has not behind behind the curtain of mystery that is Hero, didn't do amazingly, uh, didn't do badly in listens, but didn't do as well as uh, I had hoped, was my interview with Charlotte Williams on um, the new curriculum and getting BAME history and BAME lives into the Welsh curriculum. And that was a really, really interesting listen. And if you haven't heard that one, I would very much encourage everyone to do so because I, I think it's an incredibly enlightening conversation and uh, Charlotte was brilliant in it. But what about you, Kerry? What's been your highlights? I'll go with ones which stick in the, the recent memory. I, I, I thought last week's uh, with Steph from the Bevan Foundation was really good. I, I think we're touching on subject matter, which we need to put out there. So poverty in Wales is something I'm glad we spent some time on and highlighted the work Bevan Foundation do. I think that's something really that needs to be out there to a larger audience. I'm glad we did that. But as you might imagine, for my environmental lean, I was really glad we did a a good pod and some follow-up pieces on COP26. I think the panel we had, Andy, Kate and Mark, you know, uh, really, really good commentators on that area and their take on COP26, what needed to happen, and then their post-COP conclusions were were really important. And, uh, you know, we, we've done a lot this year, but climate change has featured in a number of pods and is incredibly important. I, I think it will be through next year. I just don't think we're going to get away from it until people start seeing real dramatic movements from governments across the UK and across the world to really tackle something which is increasingly becoming, you know, far more evident in day-to-day life. That was a, that was a bit um, deep and dark for the end of the pod, wasn't it? Well we, can, say. well, we can just wish everybody a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year now. And, of course, let's hope that, um, that we start 2022 in a better way than we started 2021 with regards to COVID and uh, other things, because uh, we could all do with a little bit of light at the end of the, the tunnel, couldn't we? Um, I hope everyone has a nice Christmas and as many um, vaccinations as it's legal to take. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah. I think from all of us, we'd like to wish you all the best. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.